Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called Domestic Violence and the Drug Trade with Emily O'Brien. Emily is the founder of a popcorn company called Comeback Snacks. She came up with the idea for this business when she was in prison for drug smuggling. In this podcast, Emily tells us her story, and she explains how a trip to St. Lucia with her boyfriend went extremely wrong. She was actually convinced to smuggle drugs back across the border. I really enjoyed talking to Emily because she was so real and raw, and she opened up about how all of this happened. She also explained how she was able to take this experience and turn it into something positive. She ended up opening up her own business that she was inspired to create in prison, and now she has hired other women who've been in prison to work at her business, and they've actually named a lot of the flavors based off the popcorn that they used to make when they were in there together. So I hope you learned something from this episode. I know I sure did. And without further ado, let's hear from Emily. Thanks again for joining me today. Yes, thanks for having me. It's a hot day out there and it's nice to get get out of the sun. So Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. And yeah, <laughs> we're nice in the AC, so that's good. That's right. <laughs> that's always a good start. Um, so can you just start by telling me a little bit about yourself? I know I know a bit about you, but for everyone else listening too. Of course. My name's Emily O'Brien. I'm 31 years old. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, and I went to Guelph University. I'm actually living back in Hamilton now, a subdivision called Dundas. Um, and yeah, I now have a popcorn business that I started after a very interesting experience. So. Yeah, I, I know about your popcorn business and everything. <laughs> Could you kind of share a little bit about your story and how that all came to be and, of and course. sort of that? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I grew up pretty quiet. I was a very introvert, introverted kid. I spent a lot of time at the library in high school. I, I wanted to be social. I kind of wanted to have more friends, so kind of experimented with drugs and alcohol there. was pretty rebellious as a teenager, I'm not going to lie, but I always had that inner grit. And I knew that that wasn't my life. Um, so after high school, I kind of, or before I graduated high school, pulled my grades up, gone to university. Uh, I always had a job. You know, I, I loved making my own money. I also loved volunteering. And when I graduated the University of Guelph in 2012 with a degree in international development, I lived in Indonesia for a couple months. I loved it. I thought traveling brought me an energy that I couldn't really cultivate just being at home. Yeah. And it made me have a different appreciation of life. And so when I came back to Canada, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, so I took up a corporate job with a company called Pitney Bowes and I sold postage meters. And that's when I figured out I was really good with people. And so I moved to Toronto. And after getting some like suggestions about you know, what to do with my marketing skills, someone was like, why don't you start a social media company? Because you're, you're really good at it. And, so I did. Uh, I moved downtown Toronto, Liberty Village. I wanted to get out of Hamilton. And in that scene, there was just lots and lots of partying, like so much going on. 
and there was like a family issue going on at the time so I kind of engaged in more drug and alcohol abuse uh, but it was normalized because of the environment that I lived in and you know I was casually dating a couple people here and there um, but they weren't really anyone of, of substance I would say and yeah. and then I met this guy and he was just he wanted me to stop partying he's like I'm like so much better than this so we start casually seeing each other for six to seven months and one day he comes over and he's like uh, you know I want to take you on this trip because uh, I know you're going through a lot and He's like, but well, there's one thing I, I have to ask you. And I'm like, well, what is it? And he's like, well, I have to bring drugs back, uh, but you won't have to do anything. Just be my girlfriend and wow. it'll, it'll be fun. And I was like, okay, absolutely not. I was like mortified that he would even ask me. And I was, I was mad that he thought I would, could ever be that, that stupid. And, but I also like really liked him. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll just pretend he never said that. He's like, I'm so stupid, I shouldn't say anything. And I go out that night and he knows that I like to go out at night. and. It's about 11.30, and he's like, you know what, forget I ever said anything about the drugs. Like, let's just go on a trip, me and you, just for a week, it'll be a, a nice escape. And I said, okay. And so he's like, okay, send me your passport information when I get home. And I was like, okay, cool. We leave about two days later, and already we get to the airport, um, and we're going to a, a destination like that's completely different than what he told me. And then he kind of started saying, oh no, it was just your drinking. Like, I was like, no, you told me we were going to Puerto Rico, and I wasn't, like, blackout drunk when we booked this trip, you know, when I agreed to go on this trip, and he, but I still, you know, he convinced me that it was my fault that I had gotten the de destination wrong, and he's like, no, we're, we're going, we're going to St. Lucia. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a I switch. Was, I know, and I was already at the airport, I was like, okay, all right, maybe you're right, let's go. Go down to St. Lucia. Three days in, it's, you know, a very fun-filled three days, and the third day in, it's a Wednesday, and he tells me that our friends, his friends, are coming to pick us up, and that I'm there to work, and that I actually am going to be bringing drugs back with him, so I... How do you feel about that? Definitely nervous. I knew I wasn't good at lying, and I'd never done that before in my life, but I did just, like, want to go home, and it was the Wednesday, I thought... Maybe I could just weasel my way out of it. Like, he's, he's kidding, right? Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case. You know, we go to this house, and I get strapped up. Like, well, actually, I don't get strapped up to the last day. But there's people, and they kind of take my measurements, and they're, they're basically assessing my body to see how much I should be carrying. Oh, my gosh. That sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, again, I just, you know, I was like, okay, I have three days left. And I told him, I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm a terrible liar. Like, I failed acting class, and <laughs> he was just in, like, such dire straits that he's like, no, like, you have to do this. And he's like, how could you not, how could you think we weren't going to do it? And people were like, after everything happened, people were like, oh, like, why didn't you, like, say no or tr try to get away or tell the authorities? And I'm like, I'm in a foreign country, and if I go to the authorities, I don't know who they know, but I do know that the international drug trafficking world is, it's a billion-dollar industry. Mm -hmm. And people can be paid off, and I'm not about to try to play hardball in this situation. So I just thought the safest way out, and I just wanted to protect myself and, and my loved ones because at this point they had all my information because he, when he booked the tickets, he told them that we'd both be – he'd acquired some debt or something. And yeah. So had told them that me and him would be coming down, and so now they expected me okay. to do this. Yeah. And on the last day, you know, we get picked up again, and I get – fitted with two kilograms of cocaine and put on the plane. And I'm with him. 
and kind of freaking out the last two days. Like it was just a nightmare. Like I was doing drugs down there. I was drinking, just trying to like have some sense of normalcy or just to make it go by faster. Yeah. And then we get, we land at a Pearson and I panicked so much prior to the departure that he was like, okay, like if you, when we get to Pearson, you can take the drugs off you, put it in your backpack and give me the backpack and I'll take it through customs. Cause I was like, I'm going to have a meltdown at customs. And so he told me this and I was like, okay, I felt a little bit better. Yeah. But we land at Pearson. He's like, oh, it's too late now. And now this is like, you know, I'm like hundred meters from the customs official and I'm now being told that, you know, I can't go to the bathroom anymore and take the drugs off because it's too late. So I got arrested and put in a holding cell and my life changed a lot after that. So I, yeah. Up, yeah. Oh my gosh. Thanks for sharing that with me. It's, it's a <laughs> crazy story. Like I, I'm sorry you had to go through that and I can't imagine what you must have been feeling through all that and thinking, oh, it's not going to really happen. I don't have to go through with it and kind of being tricked into it essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm so interested. So what happened once you got back and to Pearson and they found out what kind of happened next? So we both got arrested and even then I'm still thinking everything's going to be fine. Like I'm not going to go screaming to the securities because these aren't my narcotics. Mm-hmm. And I know what happens to people that you know, sabotage operations. So I had to honestly act to the best of my ability. But when I finally, we got called into secondary, I knew that it, like the jig was up. Um, you, I could tell like they separated us immediately. Like he went to a kind of a, an agent over there and then I went to one that was like, there's a space in between them. So I couldn't see him, my back was turned to him. Yeah. And they asked me a series of questions and eventually they asked me, you know, Mr. O'Brien, do you have drugs on you? Because my body language was just radiating signs of discomfort and stress. And even though I wasn't screaming, help me, like they could tell something was off. And yeah, so I got arrested and charged with importing narcotics. And I, you know, I still didn't think it was that big of a deal. I, I, I didn't study the criminal code. Like I wasn't well-versed in any of this. Yeah. And so now I'm being told I'm put on house arrest until, you know, the case can come to its conclusion and had to move back in with my mom and it wasn't until two and a half years later of living on bail you know depleting all my finance financial reserves to legal fees um living like in a way where i was paranoid like i didn't know what was going to happen and then i got sentenced to four years in federal prison oh my gosh that must when you got the news of that it must have just been how was it sorry i shouldn't put your words in your mouth what was it like when you found out um I, when I first got arrested, I was reading stories. I was like, oh my God, prison, like what is, like, there's no way. I saw it as an inconvenience. And I like to play kind of like the victim at first because, you know, my, my family, they love me, but they're like, Emily, like you were, you're drinking a lot, you're doing a lot of drugs. Like we, we thought something like this would happen. And living in like that, that lifestyle, I knew there, was, there were factors, but I also knew that I didn't orchestrate any of this. And so when I thought prison, I was, it was very daunting at first, and it took a while for me to kind of come around and realize that, okay, maybe there's a way to share this story and make it more powerful so that I can help others. If there's gonna be any social good out of this, it, it can come from me, because I didn't want anyone else to own the story but me. I was, I was sick of the courts owning my life. I was sick of my lawyer owning my finances, and I really wanted to, to own this story 
um, as my as my one asset at the time. Yeah, I don't blame you. This is your story, and only you know what happened from your perspective. And I I could imagine that is the one kind of thing you have left at that point. It would probably feel like, and you, I could totally get that. Like you want to make sure that it's is told from the way you see it, right? Mm-hmm. So. Now we're going kind of, I'm sorry, I keep getting more excited as we talk and it's just, it's It's so interesting to hear it from you. I've read a lot about it, but to hear it from you in person is really incredible. Um, So I know you you did end up going to prison, you went to Grand Valley. So Mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about your experience in there as well? Of course. So Grand Valley is in Kitchener, Ontario. And I'm not going to lie, like the first day I was nervous, right? But I also knew that I was good with, like I was pretty social and... I was kind of ready to like face my time. And I was at the point where I'd finally like ditched this guy for good, like because even after I got arrested, he was contacting me being like, everything's gonna be fine, baby. I'll pay for this. Like mm-hmm. he didn't pay for a cent. Um, and so, I, but I was still like so kind of in shock and he was kind of the only one that I knew that was going through it. So I, I even talked to him like after this and still kind of clung on to any little bit of, of hope. And it didn't take, uh, it took till I actually like was off the alcohol and drugs to actually realize like, no, this guy's, is no good and so going to prison I actually felt finally free from him yeah and also free from like the substances and you know I lived I lived in a house I was a very low risk offender so they put me in a house with a a group of other women and we cooked all of our own food like there is definitely very regimented the schedule like Mm -hmm. you have to you know be there for count and you have to go through all your correctional programming you can only have visitors certain days of the week and but I wasn't like, after the second day, I wasn't really scared anymore. Like okay. I was, I was almost like relieved because I knew that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Okay. Well, and like you say, you know, you were free of him once you got here too. Did you see it at the time um, as domestic violence? Like, did you, did that ever enter your head or? Never. No, never. Because when you get arrested, you're told that it's all your fault. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you're a dumb blonde, you know, people see you as some like, you know, snobby kid who like wanted a free trip, right? Because that's peop- what people read in the news. It's like, oh, just another like drug mule and no one wants to actually read the story. And they just think you're coming up with excuses to like, you know, get yourself off like the blame or whatever. And I think it's, there is accountability that needs to be involved on, that need to be involved on my part. But then it took me a while to realize that it was, you know, a lot of, it was like an orchestrated plan of his and just like full of deceit and lies um, but when someone comes off as so perfect and so different from like a lot of, you know, people out there, uh, it was it was almost like I, I thought he actually had my best intentions at heart, and I, I didn't see it as that, like because I, I wasn't hit or anything when I was down there. I wasn't like raped or strangled, or so I was like, oh no, it wasn't like domestic violence. I was just stupid, and I should have seen it coming. Yeah, I think. I think that's a story we hear a lot here too at Women's Crisis Services. You know, we help women and their children who are experiencing domestic violence. And I've heard time and time again, I didn't know that's what this was when it was happening to me or or he didn't hit me and there's no physical abuse. And I think a lot of the time we do think of the physical violence, but we don't think of the emotional, the manipulation, the psychological abuse that's sometimes there. And then it's only when you remove yourselves from it and look back that sometimes you're you're able to see what transpired there. So mm-hmm. looking back, do you see it differently now? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. But I just clung to him because he was just so different. And people are like, oh, Emily, you're, you're a smart girl, and you can have a good education, you can have a good family, but 
it doesn't make you like impenetrable from negative forces and, and negative intentions of others. And I knew that my, my substance use at the time like made me more vulnerable and made me more willing to like forgive like the weird things that were going on with him. So yeah, and sometimes I think it can be easy to look past people's flaws when there's good things and, and that's kind of sometimes the cycle of abuse too is something good happens, something bad happens and it goes around and, and it makes it so it's, it's really challenging to see what's going on there because you're in the thick of it. It's like a tornado happening at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, and so today I know I wanted to hear about your story and then I also wanted to talk a bit about domestic violence and drug trafficking and how they do intersect because mm-hmm. I don't think it's something that people think about all the time. Like you just said, people might think that women who end up being drug mules, maybe they chose this, maybe they wanted to be a part of it, where in your case, you didn't even know what was going on until you were there and, and you didn't believe it was happening. So I'm just kind of... Um, wondering if you can kind of explain how this begins and I know I know you explained it in your story but how do you think sometimes this begins for other women and how how does this start it begins with the other party establishing trust and being so different right and it's it's a grooming process right like they appear so different and then they they act like they're actually interested in your life when really they're kind of doing research on you you know, they're like, oh, you've traveled so much. Like, that's great. You know, you're so open-minded. I'm like, yeah, this guy's cool. He's cool with me being the way that I am. When really he wanted to find out if I had a criminal record so I wouldn't be searched at the border. He knew that I was kind of socially dating, like not in, in like any serious relationship. So that was another thing. And he knew that I was well-traveled. So it's kind of them finding out other details of your life and where you're hurting the most um, to get into your head and make you feel like you need them. And I didn't really want to talk to other people about what was going on with my family because it was it was personal. And I didn't want to like bring that stress into my business and to like my colleagues. Right? So yeah. it definitely started out as that. And they, they know exactly what you want and, and what you like. And then they, they use that on you. Yeah, exactly. Like you're touching on it right now, but can you go even a little further? And why do you think it's challenging for women in these situations to to recognize it, to, to leave. I, I personally hate that question myself, is why don't women just leave? We know it's complicated, but mm-hmm. can you explain for those who don't know why it is so complicated and, and what kind of the details are here, why it is so hard? Because you're being treated like royalty. So why would you want to leave a relationship that you, that you think is good for you? And it's not until you're in another country where you have no one else but them. They can. It's an, an area where you have no experience, like criminal criminal like organized crime and all you have is them so it's like a forced dependency and you don't want to like ask too many questions because you like what you just believe everything that they say because you you honestly that's all you have is that person so they bring you somewhere where you honestly like can't get out yeah and like you said they just earned your trust they and then all of a sudden it turns into the power and control a bit like they have this power over you you're somewhere you never expect it to be. You can't leave, like you said. You don't trust anyone else and mm-hmm. who can you talk to. I get it. It sounds, you know, what are you to do in that situation? And I don't think that's something uh, that people always think about. You People don't think about how does that actually happen. And it, it plays out a lot differently than you might think. Mm-hmm. I read an article before this, too, about 
um, how a few years ago women in Canada became um, more likely, it was more women than men were actually bringing drugs across the border and drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading about why this is, it was it was for the reasons you just said, women are groomed for it and they're less suspectable sometimes. And, and, and that's how it happened. So I wondered if you wanted to speak to that at all either, if you had any thoughts. Yeah, like the funny thing is, the way that I was groomed, he thought I would be less suspectable or suspicious, but that's exactly what the border agents are looking for. Yeah. But when you've never done it, you don't know. Like they're looking for like, you know, young, pretty girls, right? Who have traveled a lot and they're wondering why they're traveling with, with this guy, right? And I didn't know his travel history because he just, I didn't ask for his passport, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I guess he'd been going back and forth. And so there's this, like another side to him that I completely didn't know, but I also like brushed off the weird things that were happening because of, again, selective memory, right? Yeah. And, you know, we all like to talk about the great treatment that we're like receiving from people. And I've traveled with, with partners before and, and it's been fine. So I was like, okay, like what's another, what's another kind of trip, right? And, but he knew that and he knew that I was, you know, I wasn't someone who's gonna like ask my parents if I could go on a trip, right? He, he knew that I was very independent yeah. And so he capitalized on that. Yeah. It's just not fair. It's so frustrating to think about. But um, but you have made it through it. And mm-hmm. on the other side of this, you've come back better than ever. You have comeback snacks, your <laughs> business. So I know that started in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that got started and, and why you decided to start this business. Mm-hmm. So despite everything that had happened, there had always been a fire in me. And when I first got arrested, there was a fire for revenge. And that wasn't putting me in a good headspace. Like the more people I told about how I wanted revenge, they'd be like, Let, like, let's go like, you know, beat him up or something like that. And I couldn't heal. I was like, this isn't getting me anywhere. The best revenge that I can have is from creating a new life for myself and coming back in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. Or like you can still get like revenge, but get it in a positive way, right? Just be like, don't let it beat you. Because it can be revenge can be crippling the need for it, and it's like a drug. Like you, you yearn for it, and once you get it, it feels so good. But like, where did that really, what did that really do? And then that just puts you in a more dangerous spot. Now, now they they might come after you, right? So it's like, okay, what can I do that's going to create something that that no one can take, and that that no one can, you know, come back on me for, or something like that, right? And I wasn't, I didn't know what that was going to be because I hadn't been to prison then, um, and I knew I'd find inspiration somewhere, and I knew that my story could have been unique. And I just never read about it a lot in the papers because women don't want to share their stories because they're shamed or they're scared like, oh, I'll never get a, get a job or mm-hmm. whatever. And I was like, maybe I can share this in a way that will make me get a job. And one day we were just making popcorn and popcorn was a popular prison snack. Okay. And I'd, I'd built businesses before. Like I've always been creative and I wanted to use my creativity for good. And so I was like, why don't I start a popcorn business and use it as a way to share other people's stories, share how the, these kinds of things happen and also talk to the public about you know the actual structure of the drug trade and, and how it happens it's not just bringing drugs over the border it, it's way more complicated than that like the before and the after and reintegration for people coming after coming out of prison is, is very difficult because of like what people see in the media and it's like you see the worst of the worst and i knew that everyone in prison was smart and and kind and caring and and wanted a second chance but there was just so many barriers Mm -hmm. to doing so um and so i was like i'm gonna do start a popcorn company because at the end of the day i was like you know what 
I'm going to have, like, even if I apply for a job, they're going to check for my criminal record or whatever. So why don't I just put it out there and own it and find strength in the story and make that an asset instead of a liability. And so it became a social enterprise. So now I, I hire people that have like been incarcerated. I do, I do talks, you know, I actually meet with other employers and chamber of commerce is, is that how you say it? Yeah. Other chamber of commerce, <laughs> chamber of commerce to like, you know, help businesses craft better HR policies on, on hiring. Because if you're just like saying no to every person that has a record because of something they did without understanding the situation, you could be missing out on untapped talent. And that's not good for any economy. And if we keep saying no, people are just gonna, you know, go on, on welfare or like other social programs. Mm -hmm. And our society is gonna be inhibited by that. And 13% of Canadians have criminal records according to the John Howard Society. Okay. And we're actually rejecting 13% of our workforce. It just, it doesn't make sense. So, uh, well, especially when there's good and creative workers like you, like I tell me more about the business because it's yeah. so cool. I love the idea of yeah. comeback snacks. Yeah. Uh, I think you rebranded recently too. Yeah, but you know you have lots of strengths with marketing, social media, like you said. So tell me how this kind of came into your company. Um, so I was always a, I was always good at like telling stories, and I was also good at kind of adding humor where it was appropriate. Right, like I, how the situation happened isn't something that would make anyone really laugh. Like there's there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and it, it impacted my whole family. But when you can find joy in sometimes the darkest of times, that is what makes you resilient. And so I was able to kind of tie in like fun humor into the branding. Um, like our slogan is "Popcorn so good it's criminal," right? So just uh, just taking 100% ownership. Uh, the flavors were inspired by some of the recipes that we had on the inside. And now we've expanded to more classic ones because everyone likes, you know, the caramel corn and all yeah. that stuff. Um, because in popcorn, or because in prison, popcorn was like a way for people to create and be creative. And I wanted to share that as part of like the launch. Yeah. So. What were some of the flavors that you guys would make in prison? So we did a lemon pepper dill. Cool. Yeah. Um, I did one called, I called it jailhouse cheese and I would get craft dinner cheese powder and put it on my popcorn. That's hilarious. We did like a prison beaver tail kind of thing where it was like cinnamon and stevia. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And it's also memories, right? Like that's still a part of your life and a part of your story and your journey. So I, I just think it's really cool that you could bring that into your next chapter too, instead of kind of closing the book there, it's come along with you and it's part of who you are now. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. hundred um, percent. You were also saying, um, that there were other women that you met in prison who who had gone through similar things or who at least had um, different challenges. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, did you meet other women who went through very similar things to you? And if so, could you maybe share a little bit about that? Yeah, 100%. When I got there, I was honestly blown away by how many women were in there for the exact same thing. And we're not talking about light sentences. Like when you bring narcotics over a border, like you're dealing with mandatory minimums, so 80% of women in prison are mothers, and so you're taking them away from their family. Often it was, you know, a plan by, by their husband. Like, no one does this stuff alone, right? But then now the people that are suffering consequences are alone. The kids are alone. It's causing undue stress on, on the whole family. I just think there's way better ways to kind of deal with what had happened um, from, like, a macro level as opposed to, like, you know, it's... it's it's just you and it's just like you're going to, to jail for it. It's like, what about all the other factors? 
Um, yeah, I saw a woman that actually, she had to have her kid brought into prison. I saw uh, a woman whose kid wouldn't come see her and she had a really difficult time in the prison just because she had unresolved anger issues and she also had no support. And so now she's her, her duration in prison is getting extended because of altercations, things like that. Um, yeah, it's basically basically like a pyramid scheme, like like the drug smuggling world, right? It's like, oh, we're gonna sell this for a hundred thousand, but we're only gonna give you like five thousand, right? So okay, it's like a whole just a whole nasty pyramid scheme. And so then, yeah. is it less likely like the people who are doing the smuggling are more likely to get caught, whereas they're not the ones behind the yeah. plan? Could you explain that a little bit more too? Yeah, a hundred percent. So sometimes in the drug trade, like they'll get mules, right? They'll either offer them some financial compensation or or none, depending on the situation. And, um, oh yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, you're just explaining how Wait. it works and how the people who are taking the drugs across the border aren't always the ones with a plan. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> so there's people like the higher ups, they'll organize, you know, they'll have like tons of girls just flying in and out. And the people with like two keys or one key aren't usually the ones that are supposed to get through. Like, they're, they won't know it, they, but they'll actually be like a decoy because, you know, they're not well versed in it. So there'll be someone on the same plane with an even bigger suitcase. And sometimes they'll even call the authorities. The people that put the drugs on the people will call the authorities and be like, watch over this person. In my case, I was just terrible at it. And like my body language was radiating and they were also following him. Mm -hmm. So like sometimes you don't know who you're traveling with and that they could be a suspicious traveler already and you don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I would have never thought that they would call the police or call on someone that they sent as a decoy, but I'm, I guess it makes sense. It's a lot more complicated than you'd ever think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also kind of wondering why I'm, I mean, it's obvious you're passionate about this and, and to help others who've gone through the same thing, but can you explain why this conversation is important to you and why you think we need to shine a light on these issues? It's super important to me because I saw so so many people with good intentions and so much love to give, and they just made one mistake. And the system punishes you the time that you're in, and it also punishes you far after you're gone. Like society punishes you, right? It's like society holds this, this grudge against you. It's it's like we've all gotten speeding tickets, right? And we get a speeding ticket, we're like, oh no, I hope my insurance doesn't find out because if they find out, they're gonna raise the rates. Mm -hmm. Right? Or we're not going to get insurance. And that's exactly how people that leave the system feel. It's like, oh, I'm still getting punished for this. Right? Yeah. And also I wanted to teach people that, like, not – that people that break the law or find themselves in these situations aren't out there to, to harm other people. It's not like I want to harm the community with all these drugs. I understand that drugs do cause a lot of, of harm, but the way that they're brought into the country, it's often because that person that's doing it is, is suffering emotionally in some way. Right, it, it, whether it's poverty, mental illness, addiction, it's <laughs> like very few people get into these situations just on a whim, right? Or like, yeah, was like I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna drive like a Lamborghini. Like you never see that. The people that are driving the Lamborghinis aren't the people bringing drugs over the border, right? So, and I saw how I saw people like really sad in there because they didn't know where their life was going, and that's kind of how I felt when I got arrested. 
And I, but I knew that I was better than that. I wanted to share, like, I wanted to help other people grow because that's something like that I call emotional profit. And that's like money for the soul. And when you believe in something, cause you've have had a lived experience and you see like so much inequality, even though there like has been things that have happened, like that's what, what really drives me. And like when I know I'm making a difference, that's what like propels me, right? So you can have this fire, but then it's like you light it with this, this gasoline cause you know that people are starting to understand. And so, yeah, that's kind of why I do what I do. Yeah, I can feel it coming off of you. It's, it's positivity. It is. It's great. It's energizing. And it's just really nice. And it's it's awesome to hear your story because I, I don't think it's something we hear about a lot. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important for people to understand how drug trafficking and domestic violence can intersect because there's also, you know, there's lots of people out there who don't get it. And there's women out there who might be vulnerable who don't understand either. And I think sometimes if we watch for these things, at least, at least we know some of the signs. Not saying that, um, not saying that these things are avoidable at all. But I mean, you know, a lot of people have never even heard what domestic violence is. They don't even get it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the more we talk about it, and the more awareness we can raise, and the more we can talk about helping people afterwards. Like you said, like you've employed. How many people do you have employed who you met in prison? Um, one had a really bad substance abuse issue and then one I met in prison. Okay. Yeah. So like I, I kind of hire anyone that's like had, I focus mo- mostly on people that have criminal backgrounds and, and stuff like that. But if someone's like, I had a really bad drug and I can't, you know, she did some time actually like in a provincial jail. So I guess they both have been to, to jail, but, um, yeah, but it all stems from, from emotional suffering. And a lot of women in prison are actually the victims of like horrific abuse and no one really sees that. That's why I think that's why I'm so glad you came here today to talk about that because I don't think it is something we talk about. We don't always see the link, so I I'm just really happy you're here to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing is so this project it's called the She Is Your Neighbor project, and the whole idea is to shine a light on the fact that she is your neighbor. Domestic violence happens to people all around us, even though we don't know it. Like you said, there's a veil of shame sometimes that people are behind and, and they we wanna lift that and we want people to know that she is your neighbor. It happens, we can work together, we can make this better. And that's kind of part of this is we wanna talk about how we can be better neighbors, how everyone can be a better neighbor moving forward. Mm. So I'm wondering your thoughts on what we can all do, general people in society to be better neighbors uh, to women going through this and, and to anyone really in this kind of situation? I think it all boils down to listening. I think once we know one thing or we think we know one thing, we don't want to listen. But my biggest, like, the biggest way that I've grown this this brand and, the, and this mission has been through listening to other people's stories. Because if I only heard my own voice, I don't think I'd get very far. And it's always good to kind of make it relatable. Like, it's very easy to hate someone we don't know or put blanket statements on someone we don't know but then when we think oh if if that was like our our mom or something or someone that we loved we would bend over backwards to make sure that they were okay but if it's someone we see on on the news or like down the street and we just don't want to know them so it's like we can disassociate very easy but that doesn't like we it's you can forgive people you know right and it's easy to hate a stranger because it takes less less effort but that doesn't help us as a society at all. And it can actually drive people deeper into, into depression, uh, feelings of reject, rejection, shame, which just perpetuates the cycle of like, unhealth, like an unhealthy life and, and a sad life. And if, that, if we are going through that, we wouldn't want people to look at us like that, 100%. So I think it's all about listening. You really have to listen. 
I think that's great and I think it's cool how you're doing trainings too and with workplaces and teaching people about how we can hire those with criminal records and in certain positions and, and figuring out how we can work together because I, I think that is a big part of it like you said is making sure you're not punished twice and how can we move forward because there are people with awesome skills and talents like you and we want people like that in the in our society contributing right? Mm-hmm. So before we go, can you just tell us uh, where people can find Comeback Snacks if they'd like to get some popcorn? I'm dying to try it myself. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So you can check me out online. Uh, our website is comebacksnacks.com. On Instagram, it's also Comeback Snacks. My personal Instagram handle is at ems.obrien, and that's where I share a lot about like prison experiences, prison life, uh, people that we work with, things that are going on. And so you can order popcorn online. You can get it actually in Waterloo at Hurley's Market. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's of today actually and we do deliveries as well because um, I know in these times you know everyone's kind of purchasing their food in, in their own preferred way mm -hmm. given their circumstances and so we try to you know we're like an elastic we kind of can can shrink and we can build and yeah it's it's been a, an interesting journey but the brand was built in a time of like uncertainty and isolation and chaos and you know you don't really know what's going on so I'm like okay like, this is just another wave of that. This is like my second wave of uncertainty. It's the first wave of Corona, but it's like a second wave of uncertainty for me. And sometimes that's when you can actually be your most creative. It's like when you have things taken away from you and you have to learn to think, I guess I thought inside the box, but like, you know, <laughs> you, you find different ways where you can help people. And then when you can actually help people, that's when you truly see growth. Oh, I love that. Thanks so much for being here today. It's, it's so great to hear from you. Yeah, it's awesome. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.